0: chapter 14. Now, you know what? Um, A lot of times through the week, uh, Frank and I will be able to talk about, you know, what I'm studying, what I'm going to be speaking on. Uh, It didn't happen this week, but I'm just telling you, the songs that we sang today could not be more appropriate. Uh, In fact, it would, I guess the only thing that could make them more appropriate is if we would do them at the end, because I think that every single one of them, and if you'll listen this morning as we go through, you'll see what I'm talking about. But they'll, they would have meant a whole lot more to you at the end than they did uh, as we sang them today. But we're going to see some, some incredible stuff uh, in our study this morning. And I, I, wish I, I, w- I wish I could just sit down right now with every one of you, just individually. And I wish I could just talk this message to you. And I wish we could just sit down over an open Bible, and I could look you eyeball to eyeball so that you didn't miss a word. You see, that's why discipleship is so so valuable. That's why discipleship is so key. Is you, you come into the big room like this, and the Bible tells us to do this because the Spirit of God does some incredible stuff through the preaching of the Word. But when, when it's just me and you, when it's just the two of us, wow, you don't flake out, man. You don't redecorate your living room on me, you know, when we're, we're talking. You don't. When it's just me and you, you don't go, you know, for five minutes or for a solid hour. You know, uh, it's just not the way that it happens. And and today, the things that we're going to be talking about are just so so key. And uh, I, the greatest fear that I have today is us racing that. despicable clock uh, so that we we can't in one sweeping move get what we need to get this morning and I want to ask you guys to work with me today and and just put your heart and soul into this and recognize that everything that we're going to be saying today is is laying a foundation It's key to everything else that we're going to see so please don't don't just flake out on me right now it's just me and you let's work together and let's let's get something from the word of God uh, this morning. Now, for those of you who are guests and, and for our folks, this is going to be about as brief as review as I know how to give you for those folks. Now we, I am going to have to pull you into a few things that we talked about last week again, and just laying that foundation. But you folks who are our guests, we've seen some incredible incredible truths in our study of this book, as I've already invited you to turn to Revelation chapter 14. By the time you get here, there's some incredible stuff that's already come down the pipe. But what's happened to us when we got to Revelation chapter 14 is we just kind of cooled our jets a little bit with all this incredible stuff, and what we have tried to, to do is get into some, some practical stuff. Now, incredible stuff tastes wonderful, it's, it's a lot of fun, but as we've said so many times, it's the practical stuff that changes your life, and that's what we're really trying to do is let the Lord Jesus Christ change our lives. It, Amen. I'm glad you're here. All right. In in chapter 14, what happens is God holds up an incredible group of people. This incredible group is a group that's referred to as the 144,000, and they will be His servants on this planet to carry out His plan in just just a couple of years, uh, is my guess. As soon as we're raptured out of here, they will be the group of people that God is going to use to carry out His plan on this earth. And what makes this group of people so incredible is that they will be, in all of history, they will be the only group of people that ever did the job right. And one of the things that makes them so incredible is what we see in the middle of verse 4. Look at it there. It says that these are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. One of the things that makes this group of people so incredible is just the simple fact that they know how to follow. They follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. And you see, the reason that that is so practical for us is that if there's one thing that we believers in these last days don't know how to do, it's that very simple thing of following the Lord Jesus Christ following the Lamb, whithersoever he goeth. And for you guests, I'm going to define a word for you that we are going to use throughout the rest of our time together. It's the word Laodicean. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, our Lord shows us that church history, as far as he sees it, is broken down into seven periods. The seventh and final period is that period that is characterized in the letter to the Laodiceans. And so when we use that term this morning, what we're talking about is those of us that identify with Christ, that uh, identify ourselves as part uh, part of the church of Jesus Christ in these last days. And what we see in Revelation chapter 3 verses 14 to 22 as he describes us is this very simple thing. We don't know what it really means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've been looking at some of the very simple prerequisites that Jesus gave to those of us that would be his followers we went to mark chapter 8 and verse 34 and what jesus said this is not my idea this is what jesus said about those who would follow he said there's two prerequisites before you can do this number one you must say it deny yourself and secondly you must take up your cross and for about the last month or so we've been talking about what it means to take up your cross. And if you look under that point in your study sheet, you can see that we've talked so far about the reconciliation of the cross, the explanation of the cross, the nullification of the cross, and the crucifixion of the cross. And under the crucifixion of the cross, we've talked about the importance of crucifixion. And just listen very carefully. In Philippians chapter 3, in verse 10, Paul really shared... His heart, and a request that I believe is really in the heart of everybody that is a true child of God. Paul said that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. And again, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is not a doubt in my mind whether or not that is true of you. I believe if you're a believer in Christ, you want to know him, you want to know him intimately, and you want to know the power of his resurrection. But the verse goes on and says, and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable unto his death. And you see, though we want to know him, and though we want the power of his resurrection, we just don't want any part of this suffering thing, and we certainly don't want to be made conformable unto his, his death of all things. And we miss the, the importance of the crucifixion. Folks, listen, the fact is, there can be no power of resurrection unless there is first... A crucifixion unless there is first a death and then we looked at the result of crucifixion from Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14 when the cross of Jesus Christ becomes your cross and takes the place of centrality in your life just as there were two thieves that were crucified on either side of the Lord Jesus Christ in his crucifixion what we found in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14 is when that cross takes that place in our life there are also two thieves that are crucified On either side of us. One, Paul says, is the world. He says, the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. And we've talked about the fact. That's really what we want. Because as Laodiceans, one of the things that's true of us is we are very worldly. The world has an incredible pull on those of us that claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. And what we've seen, the result of this thing that we're talking about, is we come to the place to where the world no longer has the pool, because the world is crucified unto us, and we unto the world. And then we began to talk about the path of crucifixion, and that's the how. The how. And what we saw last week is, is that though the number of people who ever come to the place in their life to where they really desire to take up their cross and ever come to the place to where they really desire to be crucified with christ though that number is very very small what we began to see is that of that number most of that number though it be few most of them never really have the reality of the death burial and resurrection of christ realized in their life and we saw last week the reason that they don't is because we ask the wrong question the question we ask is we ask how how am I crucified with Christ? And we spend hours of time just pondering that. And how am I raised in the power of His resurrection? And and the reason we saw last week that that's the wrong question is that when we got saved, the life, listen now, the life that was imparted to us was a life that had already come through the process of death, burial, and resurrection. Here's the way it came down. I heard The gospel just like you did I heard that God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ and he died and was buried and rose again the third day and the reason he did that is so that I could be forgiven of my sins so I could come into a relationship with God the Father and upon hearing the message of the gospel I believed that and I believed that he alone was my only hope my only way of salvation and I called upon his name Just like it says in Romans chapter 10 in verse 9, I I called upon His name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and in an instant of time, in in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, He saved me, just like He did you. And according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13, and Colossians chapter 2 and, and verse 12, what we saw that happened at that moment, the moment that we called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, is that the Holy Spirit of God took us spiritually back some 1900 and something years and spiritually baptized us or placed us into Christ's death and placed us into his burial and placed us into Christ's resurrection. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 12 even says that the power of God that he put into operation to raise Christ from the dead is the same power that he used to, uh, and put into operation when he raised us to new life in Christ. And because of that, folks, listen now, all of us that know the Lord Jesus Christ, we have all already been crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.20 All of us that know the Lord Jesus Christ, we are already, according to Romans chapter 6 and verse 2, We're already dead to sin. Uh, According to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 3, we are already dead to self. According to Romans 6-7, we've already been freed from sin. According to Colossians 3-1, we've already been risen with Christ. In fact, spiritually, according to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 6, we're already seated in heaven. We've already gotten there and we've taken our place spiritually. So the question isn't, how do I become crucified with Christ how do I become raised in the power of his resurrection? The question is this. Do you remember? How do I experience the fullness and the power of what is already mine in Christ? How many of you feel like when I, when I say that, how many of you feel like you understand what I'm talking about? How many of you feel like you don't understand what I'm talking about? Okay, we all understand that. All right? The question we're asking is, How do I experience the release of the power of the death of Christ that will indeed make me dead indeed unto sin? The question is, how do I experience the release of the power of the burial of Christ that brings me to the place that I I rest from the work of my flesh The question is, how do I experience the release of the power of the resurrection that I will indeed be alive unto God through our Lord Jesus Christ? And you see, the reason that that's so important is because the devil would love to take the sincere desire that he sees in the hearts of so many people that are in this room. And if I could just say I appreciate so much the fact that you guys are working with all of this and saying, I want to understand what this thing is really all about. It is such a blessing, such an encouragement. The questions that you ask through the week, the things that you're talking about that God's doing in your life, it's, it's so wonderful to me. But now listen, the reason all of this is so important, that we see what has already happened to us when we were placed in Christ. The reason that that's so important is the devil would love to take that sincere desire in our hearts for us to know the fullness of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And he'd like to take this and keep it some nebulous, ethereal, mystical thing that's out there that's always just out of reach and never quite attainable in what we saw last week. As long as we're looking for this thing out there somewhere then Satan's going to be successful in just finding a group of people that really want what God wants, and they don't realize that they've already got inside of them everything that is needed, all that is needed, is just for the power of God to be released in his death and burial and resurrection. And the first thing that we've talked about, especially as, as Laodiceans, believers in these last days, that we're going to have to do, if you can say that, that we're going to have to do to see the release of this power is, number one, we must get honest with God. And I'll just tell you, it's a very rare characteristic for people in the last days. Because Jesus said that in Revelation chapter 3. He said, you think this is true. And because you think this is true, you never get honest with yourself. And you don't understand the way that I see things, and I see things as they really are. Now, you you live in this dream world, this Laodicean dream world, where you think you're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And he says, and you you don't really understand that if you really got honest with yourself, you'd find out, I'm not even in your presence. I'm knocking... On the door, just wishing I could come be a part of your big party that you got going on, but I'm not even there. And the fact is, rather than you being rich and increased with goods and having need of nothing, he says, you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And folks, listen, before we're ever going to see the release of the power of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection in our life, the first thing that's got to happen is we, lay out Laodiceans, have just got to get to the place of honesty and get to the place to where we're no longer trying to flaunt ourselves when we come to church, trying to appear to be more spiritual than God knows we really are, and that we know that we really are, and just get, it, get into the place to where we'll just say, God, I am dry. We saw this in Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 3. We will come to the Lord and we'll just present our lives as dry ground and say, I need you. What he says he'll do is he will pour Water. In fact, what he says, floods of water. And I'm telling you, the water is the place of release. It's where the power of God in his death, burial, and resurrection begins to be experienced in our life. But it begins with getting honest with God. And then that brings us to the second thing. The second thing it's going to take for us to see, the release of the power of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And that is you must, Humble yourself before God. First of all, you've got to get honest with God, and secondly, you've got to humble yourself before God. And the fact is, if you do the first one and you truly get honest with God, honest enough to, to see God for who He is, and honest enough to see yourself as you really are, you know what, it, it's going to lead you to this second thing. But now listen once it's led you there you're still faced with a monumental decision about whether you're gonna continue or not because if you're gonna continue you got honest but if you're gonna continue you know what you're gonna have to do something that few Laodiceans are willing to do and that is humble yourself before God but I want you to know listen there is absolutely no doubt about it you'll never really experience the release of the power of Christ's death on the cross in your life without first humbling yourself before God. And that's true, not because I think it's true and because I'm working a real cute outline here. Get honest with God. Humble yourself before God. You know, I kind of like the way that... No, listen, it has nothing to do with what I think, what I like, or what, what fits my outline. I'm telling you that that is true because of what the Bible says, and it says it in Philippians chapter 2, and I want you to turn over there if you would with me, back there, Philippians chapter 2, and oh my, this is just so key, and the reason it's so key is because what Paul is describing for us here is that which led to our Lord's death on the cross. Okay, now make sure that you understood what I just said. I know you're turning, and I want to make sure that you understand what I just said. What's happening here in Philippians chapter 2 is Paul is describing for us what it was that led to our Lord's death on the cross. If you want to know what it, what it was that led him there, we're going to see it in, in this passage. And, and, and so listen very carefully. As I already said, The Spirit of God has already baptized us into Christ's death and burial and resurrection. Spiritually, I'm already dead, buried, and risen by the power of the resurrection. And now listen, though that's true spiritually in my life, and it's true spiritually in your life, if you've called upon the name of the Lord to save you, even though that's true spiritually, now what our Lord wants is he wants his cross to become experientially my cross. And he wants his death to become experientially my death. And he wants his burial to become experientially my burial. He wants the power of his resurrection to become a power that is operative in my life on a daily basis experientially. And, and again, the reason Philippians chapter 2 is so key is because what, what Paul shows us here is, is in our Lord's experience what it was that led to His death, and the reason that's so significant, again, and is the whole reason that we went into everything that we went into last week, the reason that's so significant is because the path that our Lord walked that led to His crucifixion and His ultimate death, burial, and resurrection is the path, listen now, that's the path that He opened for us. And that path that He opened for us is the path upon which he's called us to walk as we respond to his invitation to follow him. Do you see that? He opened a path through his death, burial, and resurrection, and he says, now listen, I want you to take up your cross, and I want you to walk this path. I want you now to follow me. Do you see that? Jesus took his cross... And he was crucified, and he died, and he was buried, and he rose from the dead. And when Jesus tells us that if we'd like to come after him, that we've got to deny ourselves and take up our cross, do you understand what we do is we follow him through the path that he opened for us. We follow him down the path of of cross-bearing. We follow him down the path of, of suffering and crucifixion. We follow him down the path of death. We follow him through the path of burial. We follow him through the path of uh, of resurrection. And, And what our Lord is doing here in Philippians 2 through the Apostle Paul is he's allowing us to see what it was that was found in the Lord Jesus Christ that brought him to walk that path. And the whole reason I'm showing you this Is that since Christ's death is our death until what was found in him that led to his choosing the path of cross-bearing and crucifixion until that whatever it was that was found in him until that is found in us the fact is we're never really going to experience the release of the power that comes through carrying our cross along that path to our death and I want you to see what Paul says that thing was in our Lord Jesus Christ that led to his death on the cross. Paul says, look in verse 8, Paul says about our Lord in verse 8 of Philippians chapter 2, and being found in fashion as a man, just like us, all right, taking on our likeness, watch this now, he humbled himself and because he first, now listen, now watch the, the train of thought. Because he first humbled himself, go on in the rest of the verse. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And what Paul's showing us here is that had it not been for the boundless humility that was found in our Lord Jesus Christ, a, a humility that verse seven, look at it, verse seven it says that humility caused him. To make himself of no reputation and count himself as nothing but a servant to carry out the will of the Father. Without that boundless humility, folks, listen, he would have never died on that cross. What the verse says is he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Even the death of the cross. And folks, make sure that you don't miss that. You and I will never... Know the reality and the power of the death, of the cross, until we've done the very same thing that was done in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, until we have first humbled ourselves. And then I wish, I wish you knew how much time I have spent in the last several months, literally every single day of my life for the last several months I have come to Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8 and I've read that verse and I've read it and I've read it and through the day I have meditated upon it I've prayed upon this thing this he humbled himself and it was it's like a light that that just came on in, in, in time if I'm gonna be obedient to take up my cross and and, and spiritually experience the fullness of my death on the cross, the death of self, I'm going to have to do the same thing that he did. I'm going to have to humble myself. Now, I want to ask you now. Okay, now, it's, it's taken us a long time to get just to this, this place here, to where we see the second thing that's got to happen. Okay? Now, do you think that you have any idea biblically of what it means, really, to humble yourself before God? I mean, right now, if I were just going to ha- have you stand up and say, now, biblically, this is what we're talking about when we're talking about humbling yourself before God. I want you to think, through, what would you say? What does that mean? That I'm going to humble myself so that I can become obedient unto death, and not only death, but the death of the cross, the death of self. And I'll be honest with you. The reason that I have thought through this thing so long and so hard, day after day, and that is no exaggeration, folks. I'm telling you, for months, ever since we started in this thing, I come to this passage, I believe every single day, and I've read that and i thought, and you know what? To be quite honest with you, I thought I understood it several weeks ago when we were looking at the example of Isaiah. Remember when he was up there and... Oh my goodness, he was standing there in the presence of God in absolute humility before him. But as I continued to meditate on Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8, what God began to do is began to open my eyes to, to the fact that what we're able to glean from Isaiah is really just one part of humility. It's just one little small little aspect. In, in fact, of all of them, it is the most insignificant of all of the aspects of humility, though for us it is certainly going to be a beginning place for us to humble ourselves, but it's just the smallest dimension. And, and so let's begin this way. Let, let's just begin with me giving you what I see as a biblical definition of humility that's been born out of months of, of me just meditating on all of the places in the Bible that, that would talk about this thing of, of, of humbling yourself before God, and what what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the definition that I've concocted, and then I'm going to show you the rest of the morning how I came to it. But biblically, humility is this. Humility is possessing such a complete spiritual awareness and comprehension that God is all. And I'm brought to absolute and total nothingness before him and thus I'm brought to the complete abandonment of self and self-will it's possessing such a complete spiritual awareness and comprehension that God is all that I'm brought to absolute and total nothingness before him and thus the complete abandonment of self and self-will you say well that's 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 real nice Real articulate there, but in fact is, how am I brought to possess that kind of complete spiritual awareness and comprehension? How how is it that I'm brought to that kind of humility to where I see God is absolutely all and I am absolutely nothing? And as best I can see, there are four biblical reasons that we are to humble ourselves Before God. And the first one is simply this sin. Can you relate? Sin. I guess you can't relate. But you know, I I figured it out. You cannot write and say amen at the same time, right? Okay, underneath that, put it down this way I am humble because I am a sinner. I'm humble. Because I am a sinner. And this is the one that I was talking about that we see so clearly in the example of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. And why don't you turn back there if you would. Isaiah chapter 6. And when we were here two weeks ago, what we, what we would have seen is that humbling yourself doesn't begin or come about as a result of seeing yourself or your sin as it really is. What, what we saw is it begins and is the result of seeing God for who he really is. And Isaiah says in, in verse 1 that in the year that King Uzziah died, watch it now, he says I saw also the Lord. Now that's the beginning place. He says I saw the Lord and how how did he seem, y'all? He says high and lifted up he says, I, "I saw the glory of his train, of his of his robe. Man, I, I saw it as it filled the temple, and I saw him in all of his holiness." as as one seraphim cried unto another in verse three, "Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory." And Isaiah says in verse four, "And oh my goodness, I saw the." The posts of the doors, they just began to shake in his presence and the smoke as it billowed up around the the throne. And Isaiah says in verse 5, what's what's the first word in verse 5, y'all? Then. Then. When? When, Isaiah? After seeing the fullness of God for all that he is, after seeing that he is, is all, then, said I, woe is me, for I am undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips. And listen, when you see God for who He really is, listen, you can't help but see yourself and your sin as it really is. And when you do, just like it did with Isaiah, it'll bring you to the place that self is so Humble, that you literally feel that you're falling apart. Or as Isaiah said, that you are literally becoming undone. I'm just unraveling here. And again, notice. Notice what it is that brings self to that place of nothingness. It is first seeing God in the fullness of all. That he is. And then seeing that like never before. Like you could never do without seeing it. Like never before you are brought to absolute nothingness and despair because you see your sin. The same thing happened to Peter in Luke chapter 5. Turn over there if you would. Luke chapter 5. Most of you will remember the story. The disciples have been fishing all night and hadn't even caught a, a a cold Jesus comes into the boat in Luke chapter 5 and verse 3 and he says in verse 4 Luke chapter 5 now we're to verse 4 he says hey Pete listen uh, take the boat right over there and let down the nets and so Pete says in verse 5 you know Lord I, I appreciate that but you know uh, there's a lot of things in life I don't know about but one thing I do know a few things about is I do know a few things about fishing and I'll just tell you I've been fishing all night, and I'm just telling you, it ain't happening. But, you know, you are the Lord and all that deal, so whatever. And so what he does is he cruises over to where the Lord said, and he put down the nets. In verse 6, the net filled with so many fish that the nets were breaking as they're trying to pull them into the boat. And once they got them in, in verse 7, they had to hurry to shore because the boat started sinking. In fact, two of the boats. And you know what happened? Peter began to see the Lord in the fullness of who he really was. And I want you to look at what Peter's reaction was in Luke chapter 5 and verse 8. It says that when Peter saw it, check it out, y'all. He fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I... I'm a sinful man, oh Lord. He saw Jesus for who he really is. And the natural response was that it it humbled him because it immediately confronted him with his sinfulness. And and listen, we could go on and on with the biblical examples of this. You you don't need to, to turn there, but the same thing happened in Job. Job as you'll remember, was a good man. God even said about him in chapter 1 of Job that he was a man that lived righteously and eschewed or set himself apart from, stayed away from evil. But you come to the last chapter of the book, and Job says to the Lord, in Job 42, verses 5 and 6, listen to what he says. He said, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear. Oh, I've heard about you all my life. You know, because of it, it caused me to live a righteous life. And, oh, yeah, I did my best to stay away from evil. Oh, my, he says, but now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore, listen, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes And again, seeing God for who He has seen, that He is all. We're brought to the place, as Job says, to where we abhor self. We're brought to the place of dust. We're brought to the place of ashes. You know what dust and ashes is, y'all? Nothing. We're brought to nothingness because we see our sin in light of seeing Him for all that He is. And now listen and we're gonna we're gonna conclude every point that we're gonna see along the way this this same way we're gonna we're gonna conclude it with 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 a question okay it's like this when I see the place of sin in humility it it brings me to the place of humility that I asked the question that the gathering maniac asked in mark chapter 5 and verse 7 the question is this Okay. remember now I see my sin, and the question I'm brought to ask is what have I to do with Thee, Jesus, Thou Son of the Most High God? Listen, in light of my sinfulness, in light of my condition, in light of what I am in the fullness of the reality of all that You are, what have I to do with Thee? Now, let me ask you something. How many of you either feel that way right now or at some time in your life you've, you've, you've felt that sense of humility because of your sin? I think all of us that are saved, right? That's how we got into this thing. If you never came to that place, you, you probably didn't, didn't come to a cross because that's what put him there, is our sin. And let me ask you this, how many of you would be honest enough to say that you're brought to that place of humility a whole lot more often than you wish you were? Because of sin. And listen, sin ought to do that! But now listen, the, the thing that we miss in this thing of humbling ourselves is that sin, as I mentioned a minute ago, is just one aspect of what brings us to that place of humility and what's so unfortunate is that sin again as i mentioned by and large is just one little small part and yet for lay of it's about the only one that we're familiar with and because it is it's no doubt one of the key reasons that we never really experienced the crucifixion of the cross because the fact is if that's the only dimension that we know of humbling ourselves before god then we've never truly humbled ourselves before God. Because now listen, humility, humility is far more than than contrition or shame that we feel in the presence of God because of our sin. And you know how I know that that's true? Because Philippians chapter 2 says that Christ humbled himself and I ask you, did he humble himself because of sin? Second Corinthians 5.21 says he knew no sin. 1 Peter 2.22 says he did no sin. And 1 John 3.5 says that in him is no sin. Listen, he never, listen, the Lord Jesus Christ never, not one day in his life ever felt shame or contrition or humbled himself because of of his sin. So if he humbled himself, the point I'm trying to get you to see is that humility must mean something more than shame and contrition because of sin. And it does. In fact, and listen to this now, as, as humiliating and as humbling as sin is, there's something that humbles me more than sin. There's something that brings us to see our absolute nothingness and His absolute completeness even more than sin. And you know what it is, y'all? Reason number two. Grace. Amen. That's the second reason we humble ourselves before God. Grace. And underneath that, I'll put it down this way. I humble myself because I am a saint. I humble myself because I am a saint. And in our study of the book of Ephesians on Sunday night, Frank uh, just brought us through. We've been just getting started in the book, and he brought us through chapter 1 and, and verse 1 uh, of Ephesians where it talks about what it means to be called a saint. And what we've seen is that a saint is not a dead person who's immortalized in history or in some stained glass window somewhere. A saint is somebody who is in what? In Christ. A, a saint is somebody who has come to Christ with nothing but their sin and apart from any work that they would ever concoct or try to do to bring themselves into God's presence. And because they come as a sinner, they become a recipient of God's redeeming grace. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by, what's the word? grace are you saved through faith. And that, that that grace, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. And you see, that grace applies the blood of Jesus Christ to my sin. It's the grace that places me in Christ and now positionally. Because I am in Christ, God sees me the way that He sees His Son. And according to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 22, what that means is that Our Father sees every one of us that have put our faith and trust and been a recipient of God's grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees us as holy and unblameable and unreprovable in His sight. And listen, it's all because of His grace. And now listen, what humbles me more than seeing my condition before God as a sinner is realizing my position before Him as a saint. You see, and and would you please work so hard at listening. Remember, we're just eyeball to eyeball. We're just talking. It's me and you. Listen, when I see God for who He is, and I see me for who I am, and when I look at who I am and see that because of God's grace, there's no sin laid to my charge... The response of my heart, folks, isn't pride, right? I'm not, check me out, yeah. I ain't got no sin on my account, check it out, no. You see that, and it brings you to nothingness, it brings you to humility, doesn't it? I'm brought to the place of saying, oh God, you are all, you are my righteousness. You are my holiness. Oh, you are my strong tower, and I, I run into you. Oh, you are everything, God. I, I cry out with Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and verse 11. I am nothing. I'm brought to the place that Nebuchadnezzar was brought at the end of his life in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 35, and I confess that I like all of the inhabitants of the earth, as Nebuchadnezzar said, I am reputed as nothing. Listen, I'm nothing because of your incredible, amazing grace. Oh, I'm nothing. I'm nothing because of my, my sin, but I'm nothing because no sin is now laid to my charge. And the reason that there's no sin laid to my charge is because you are a a loving, merciful, forgiving, tender-hearted, and compassionate, awesome, gracious God. And yet, you know what's wild in Laodicea? The more of His grace that we apply to our lives and the less sinning we actually do and the more we become in practice who He's made us in our position. You know what? The craziest thing of all. Rather than bringing us to a place of humility, what it does in in Laodicea is it brings us to a place of comfortability. I just get real comfortable. And you know what happens to me? I start feeling pretty good about myself. I start looking around, and I start feeling pretty good about where I am and my walk with him, and the next thing I, I know, I start looking around like the Pharisee did in Luke chapter 18 and verse 11 with the attitude, Lord, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are in Laodicea. And you know what that attitude is, y'all? And oh my goodness, it is such a, a misunderstanding and misapplication of grace. Grace leads us, folks, not to pride. It brings us to absolute nothingness. It brings us to utter humility before God. And I want you to listen to, uh, to a quote from one of the writers in the Philadelphian church period. Check this out. <clears throat> pride can degrade the highest angels into devils, and humility, raise fallen flesh and blood to the thrones of angels. The last trumpet may sound the great truth through the depths of eternity that evil can have no beginning but from pride and no end but from what humility. Th- the truth is this. Pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. Under the banner of the truth, give yourself up to the meek and humble spirit of the holy Jesus. Humility must sow the seed or there can be no reaping in heaven. Look not at pride only as an unbecoming temper nor at humility only as a decent virtue for the one is death. And the other is life. The one is all hell. The other is all heaven. So much as you have of pride within you, you have of the fallen angel alive in you. So much as you have of true humility, so much you have of the Lamb of God within you. Oh, and listen to this. Could you see what every stirring of pride does to your soul? You would beg of everything you meet to tear the viper from you, though with the loss of a hand or an eye. Could you see what a sweet, divine, transforming power there is in humility, how it expels the poison of your nature and makes room for the Spirit of God to live in you? Oh, you would rather wish to be the footstool of all the world than want the smallest degree of it. Amen. And oh my goodness, if God could just help us to see pride like that. But now listen, God's grace, a true biblical understanding and application of grace would never, ever, ever lead us to pride, but rather to utter and complete humility. And and now listen, the reason I said at the beginning of this point that grace is even more humbling than sin... Is it? Do you realize, folks, oh my goodness, try to let this get into your mind, and, and, and please understand, and this, I, I hope this is just sounding like the most simple message in all the world, but I'm just telling you, this, is, this has been stewing in me for, for months and months now, but see if you can't grab a hold of this. The reason that grace is more humbling than sin is because even after we've been raptured, and we're in the presence of God in heaven, And at that point, folks, listen, we're going to be released from these dreadful, sinful bodies. According to Philippians chapter 3 and verse 21, at that point, we are going to receive a glorified body, listen to it, like unto the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. So at that point, sin is no longer an issue, and sin is no longer even a possibility. And do you realize that even then, will still be brought and will continually be brought to absolute humility before God because of grace. That's what the Bible says. And let me, let me show it to you. Turn over to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, and since it's been uh, a couple of weeks or so since we covered Revelation chapter 5, let me remind you here that in the context, John is describing what's going to be taking place around the throne of God after we've been raptured and are in the presence of the Lord. And just to jolt your memory, memory he ref- refers to us in this passage. And us, I'm talking about the, the raptured church of, of Christ. He refers to us as the 24 elders. And you see that in verse 8. Look at verse 8. John says, and when he, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, had taken the book, the four beasts, and here we go now, and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb. That's, listen, that's that place of nothingness. That place of lowliness and, and humility And watch what verse 9 says will bring us to that place. And they, that's us, sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. And here's why. For thou was slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood. And Romans 3, 24 says, listen, the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ is because of His grace. Listen, even in eternity, every time we're reminded of what it was that brought us into His presence, even in eternity, folks, the most comfortable position we'll be able to find ourselves in is on our face before Him in utter nothingness and humility, and we'll be there on our face Because we'll have such an overwhelming comprehension of his amazing, redeeming grace. And it'll cause us to literally fall before him saying, You are all. Thou art worthy. I got no business even being here. But because of what you did through your grace, I'm here. You are worthy. And remember what we saw just a minute ago? As I see the place of, of sin in humility, it, it brings me to humbly ask the question the Gadarene maniac asked in Mark chapter 5 and verse 7. you remember what the question was? And I want you to, I want you to get these in your mind. What have I to do with thee, Jesus but now listen, as I see the place of grace in humility, it brings me to humbly ask the question that Ruth asked in Ruth chapter 2. And why don't you turn back there for just a second. Uh, Frank talked about this. I'm just telling, you, the whole worship service this morning was all about this message, though nobody in the room but me knew it. And well, God, hopefully. But let me remind you here, as you're turning, we we saw this a few years ago in our study, but Ruth is, is one of, if not the, greatest picture of the church in the entire Old Testament. Because Ruth, like us, Ruth is a Gentile from a cursed race. She was a Moabite. We are a part of the human race, a cursed race. Just like us, Ruth was a stranger from the promises given... To Israel, And what this book is really all about is how that she, from a, a cursed race, a Gentile, she's taken out of the harvest field to become the bride of a Jewish kinsman redeemer who just happens to be from the city of Bethlehem. And in Ruth chapter 2, when, in this case, Boaz, the kinsman redeemer from the city of Bethlehem, When he lays eyes on her, she's laboring in the field. And and listen, in spite of her background, in spite of her birth, in spite of what she looked like at the time, he looked at her and he couldn't help it. He took one look at her and he fell madly in love with her. And the equivalent of that for us would be Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You're in Ruth chapter 2. And I want you to see Ruth's response. She responds the only way that you can to that kind of love. Ruth chapter two and verse ten. Then she fell on her face and bowed herself to the ground. And her humility—you got to see it. I mean, it's more than apparent. And she says to him, "Why?" have i found grace in thine eyes that thou shouldst take knowledge of me seeing i am a stranger and folks that's the place every person who is genuinely a recipient of god's love and forgiveness is brought listen you are brought to the place Where you pour yourself out before God, recognizing that you are nothing and that there's nothing about us that made us deserving of His love? And we're brought to the place to ask in absolute amazement and marvel. Why have I, of all people, found grace in thine eyes? Amen? And now listen, not only am I brought to see my absolute nothing and His absolute completeness because of my unbelievable sin and because of His unbelievable grace, there's a third thing that the Bible teaches that brings us to that humility. And I'm, I'm not trying to, to, to work you here, but are you, are you guys able to keep going with this? I mean, we've got, we got two more points to cover. They're not quite as long as the other ones, but... But oh my goodness, work with me right now. You know what, for us to get to this place next week is going to take us about 20 minutes to get back into the flow. And man, if we can just peel it off and we can find out what this thing of humbling ourselves before God is, we'll be the better for it, y'all. So if you need to go, go. <laughs> There's a third thing, and it's, I'm going to have to help you spell it probably, most of you. Sovereignty, sovereignty, S O so. V E R E I G N T Y, S O V E R E I G N T Y. Okay, do you know what sovereignty is? Sovereignty is the fact that God is supreme in power. It would be the equivalent of, uh, of, of us uh, when we see in the Bible where it says that God is almighty, that he is the omnipotent, that he is the all-powerful God, that he is the creator, if you will. And, and the point is this, and, th- and th- this is so important to see. Listen, humility, folks, would have been our response to God had sin never entered the picture and had grace never been necessary. Hey, we would have been brought to a place of nothingness and we would have held up God as He who is all for the simple fact that He's sovereign. For the simple fact, if you can say that, that He is the Creator and I am I'm the creature. I'm the created thing. So so now listen, not only am I humble because I am a sinner, not only am I humble because I am a saint, but thirdly, I'm humble because I am a creature. A creature. And we see this in eternity. Turn back to where we just were just a minute ago in, in Revelation chapter. 4 this time, we looked at chapter 5 at what's going to be taking place in heaven after the rapture. And, and actually, the, the, the context of that, the, of what's going on in heaven after the rapture, it began in chapter 4. The rapture, of course, is found in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. And, and what John shows us in chapter 4, okay, now listen real carefully. What John shows us in chapter 4 is that once we've been raptured, and for the very first time we find ourselves in the presence of the very throne room of God for the first time seeing God face to face can you imagine And what he shows us here is that there is something that is gonna captivate us there is something that is gonna so overwhelm us there's something that is just absolutely gonna level us and put us on our face before God even after sin no longer needs to put us there. And even before grace has had a chance to put us there. And you know what it is? When we see Him face to face, yo, we're going to be leveled because of His absolute sovereignty. We're going to see and be leveled because we're going to see Him that He is the Creator Of all things. And and you know what? In in our layout of seeing condition, you're hearing me say that and going, I'm just telling you. It's because we don't understand. We're getting ready to, though, because this is us. That we're getting ready to see here. We we don't understand it now, but you see, if you're ever going to experience the power of His death, burial, and resurrection, you better see it now. look at chapter four and verse ten no sooner have we assembled before the throne before verse ten says the four and twenty elders who's that that's us check it out fall down before him that sat on the throne and there we are again brought to nothingness brought to absolute humility and worship Him that liveth forever and ever. And and here we are casting our crowns before the throne, saying, and watch what it is that we're going to be saying, because it's going to let you know what it is that so captivated us. It's going to let you know what it is that so leveled us. We're going to be saying at that point, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for, here it is now, for Thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Do you see that? When you see God for who he really is, even when sin is totally out of the picture and even before grace is brought into the picture, John says we are brought to such a place of humility before God to the point that we're literally scrambling to position ourselves as low as we can possibly get. For the simple fact that you are the creator of all things, and all oh, my goodness, seeing you as the creator, I see myself. Why? Merely your creation. I'm just, I'm just a creature. And John says that we are going to be so enamored with all that he is. We'll see our absolute nothingness before Him. We'll see Him as the sovereign Creator, and we'll see ourselves as His servants, as merely the created. And oh, yeah. You starting to see it now? Oh, yeah. I humble myself because I'm a sinner. And oh, my. I humble myself because... God has graciously restored my position in Him to make me a saint. But, even if neither one of those things had ever been true, I would be and am humbled before God because I am the creature and He is the Creator. And I want you to turn back to Psalm 8 for a second. Let me show you the biblical question. Seeing God's sovereignty as the Creator causes us to ask. Okay, now remember, seeing the place of sin and humility causes us to ask the question of the Gadarene maniac. Remember what it was? Say it with me if you can. What have I to do with thee, Jesus Seeing the place of grace and humility causes us to ask the question of who? Ruth. and What was her question? Why? Why have I found grace in thine eyes? And here's the question seeing the place of God's sovereignty causes us to ask. It's the question that David asks in Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4. David says... When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, it, what, what is that? Creation. The moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. Here's the question. What? What is man that thou art mindful of him? Do, do you see that, folks? Folks. When you see the almighty power of God as the creator of all things, you won't be able to help it. You'll be brought to such a... I don't care who you are, if you're going to heaven, when you see Him as the creator of all things, you'll be brought to such amazement and such wonder and such nothingness that you'll be compelled to cry out with David. Oh God, what is man... That thou art mindful of him? Who in the world am I that you'd have anything whatsoever to do with me? But now remember where this whole discussion of humility started. You remember? It was a long time ago, hadn't it? It started in Philippians chapter 2. Because it said that the thing that led Jesus along the path to death. The death of the cross was that He did what? He humbled Himself. Okay, so let's turn back there again. Philippians chapter 2. And the thing... Oh oh my goodness, y'all. You've done so good. You're working with me. I appreciate it. Oh, don't let your mind flake out right now. Now listen. The thing I want you to try to work through in your mind right now is yes, it is sin that humbles me. And it is no doubt grace that humbles me and you. And it is certainly sovereignty that humbles me. But do you see this? None of those three have anything whatsoever to do with what Philippians 2.8 is talking about when it says that he humbled himself because the fact is, folks, he never sinned. And because he didn't, He never was the recipient of grace because he never needed it. And he never was a created being. He himself, the Bible says, was the creator of all things and he has been equal with God the Father for all of eternity. And that's why, look at verse 6. That's why it says he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. You know what robbery is, y'all? Robbery is when you take something that doesn't belong to you. And you see equality with god the father wasn't robbery for the lord jesus christ because it belonged to him it was his it's always been his because he is co-eternal with the father he's co-equal with the father because he the lord jesus christ is sovereign so if sin grace and sovereignty didn't have anything to do with the fact that the lord jesus christ humbled himself There must be at least one other dimension of this thing of humility that we haven't hit on yet. And there is. And you knew that because you can see there's another point on your outline. But it leads us to this fourth thing, reason number four, that we're humble before God. And that is conformity. Conformity. And put it down this way underneath it. I know you don't understand that yet, but you will put it down this way. I am humble because I am a disciple of Christ. I'm a disciple of Christ and now now, now listen, okay we're, we're wrapping it in right now, okay I'm a disciple and because I'm a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8 and verse 29 says that God predestined me to be, what? Conformed to the image of His Son. And check this out now. Though He wasn't a sinner, though He never was the recipient and never needed grace, though He Himself was never created, He was still... Humble. You know why? So important. You know why? Because humility was his nature. Humility was part of his character. Humility was one of his attributes. Humility is simply one of the inherent qualities the Lord Jesus Christ has. Listen, humility is who he is. Do you understand that? It's, it's the... He's the personification of humility. It's what He's all about. And, and you see it manifested in every dimension of His existence. First of all, He was humble in His birth. Verse, look at verse 6. Listen, though He was equal with God. Drop down to the end of verse 7. It says that He was made in the likeness of of men
1: would you grab a hold of that
0: some of you you just flake out if it's not not a blank and it must not be important oh would you listen I mean it was an absolutely unbelievably humbling thing just the very fact y'all that the sovereign omnipotent creator God would become a human being at all And we get all misty-eyed and teary-eyed because of the stable and because of the manger. One so wonderful in having such a place to be born. Forget the stable. Forget the manger. Just the fact that he was born. Put him in the greatest palace in all of the world. And it's still the most humbling thing in all the world that the God of the universe would become a baby, a man, and take on the same human flesh that you and I possess that He would become our kinsman, Redeemer, because He took our flesh. But not only was He humble in His birth, He was also humble in His life. Would you look at verse 7? He made Himself of no reputation and took upon Him the form of a servant. I want you to think about it. I mean, listen, y'all. Here He is, God, whose place of rest ever since eternity has been the most exalted place in the entire universe. His place of rest was the highest throne in the highest heaven, and yet He came to this earth. And the Bible says in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 20 that in this life, He didn't have a place to lay His hand. And I mean, check it out, here he is, God, the one that John the Baptist so understood, he said, whose shoes I'm not worthy to bend down and untie. That's how wonderful this one is, I can't even bend down and untie his shoes. And here is the Lord Jesus Christ in the upper room with his disciples, after the fact that on the way to that very room they've been arguing about which one of them was the greatest and when they come into the room you know where you find the lord jesus christ the one that john wasn't worthy to bend down and untie his shoes and you know where you find him he stooped over bent down washing the dirty stinking reeking rotten royal feet of the disciples and I mean check it out here he is God whose fellowship since eternity past has been with the God the Father and with the glorious Holy Spirit and they fellowship together on this planet walking the dirty, stinking roads of Galilee, fellowshipping and pouring his life into a ragged band of unlearned and ignorant men. And here he is, God. The one who, since everlasting, was the one who received the highest praise, the highest honor, the highest glory from the most holy angels as they bowed themselves at His feet. And here He is in His earthly life. And you know what He's receiving now? He's receiving a nail into those feet. He's receiving a nail into those hands from the vilest, of all men. Let me tell you something. He was humble. Humble in His birth. Humble in His life, and most certainly, humble in His death. Now now listen. It, It would have been Try to get this in your mind. It would have been the most staggering, mind-boggling act of humility just if he would have died. I mean, can you imagine, y'all, the source of life? The giver of life. The one who said, I am the life. The one who is the embodiment of eternal life and he's dying! What Paul says in verse 8 here in Philippians chapter 2, that he not only became obedient unto death, now do you see why he tacks that on the end? Even the death of the cross. The absolute most humbling, most humiliating way to die, and he did that. You know why he did that? Because he was humble. Humility personified who he was. And and now listen. And and, and there's a real scary little place we're moving into right now because we're about to finish the last blankies on the study sheet, and everyone's going to go, okay. Okay, fill we'll fill in our little blankies. Let's hang on the rim for just a minute. Let's make sure we get what we're supposed to be getting here. Okay, now listen. Humility personified who He was. And as His disciple, the more like Him I allow Him to make me, and the more like Him I become, The more I allow Him, as we saw in Romans 8, 29, to conform me into His image, do you see it now? If that's who He is, I'm being conformed into His image, then the more I become like Him, the more humble I become. I mean, think of that, y'all. Now listen. He's conforming us into His image. He's making me this dirty, sinful man who is the recipient of undeserving, redeeming grace. The one who is just a stinking creature. And He's making me like Him? I mean, listen, can you think of anything in the entire universe that you'd rather be Some of you wish you were Michael Jordan. Some of you wish you were Wayne Gretzky. Some of you wish you were uh, anybody other than who you are. Listen, can you think of anybody in this entire world that you'd rather be than the Lord Jesus Christ? Is there anybody that you'd rather be like than that? And and listen, Romans 8.29 says, I've been predestined to become that. And I mean to tell you, as a sinner and as a creature, you grab a hold of that and you talk about humbling. I'm being made like him. And once again, it brings us to ask another question. This time, the question of Job. And for time's sake, I won't have you turn there. But it's Job chapter 7. In verse 17, and what we saw is because of my sin, I ask, oh my, what have I to do with thee, Jesus? And because of his grace, do you remember? Why have I found grace in thine eyes? Because of sovereignty, I ask, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And listen, now because of his promise to conform me into the image of Christ, it brings me to ask the question that Job asked in Job 7, verse 17. Here it is. What is man that thou shouldest magnify him and that thou shouldest set thine heart upon him? Oh, listen. You know what is the most humbling thing in all the world? The fact that the Holy Creator, God of the universe, has magnified us. Wait, wait, did I hear you right? Yeah. The most humbling thing in all the world is that God has magnified us. You know what is the most sobering thing to our hearts in all of the world? The fact that God set his heart upon us. And God says to us, now, and listen, now that you have received my son, I've determined and I've predetermined that this would be so. I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to make you like him and listen that's why we're humble because we're like him we're humble because we're disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ and God is determined to magnify us he magnifies us by conforming us into his image he magnifies us by making us like him And what that means is He magnifies us by making us humble. Because we're being made like Christ. you get that? And and so now listen. If you're going to walk the path that our Lord walked, that path, you remember that He opened for us, that path that we will walk in order to be obedient unto His death, even the death of the cross. What's got to happen? Before that power can be released, I've got to humble myself. And for us, there's four dimensions. Of that humility sin grace sovereignty and conformity i'm humble because i'm a sinner i'm humble because i'm a saint i'm humble because i'm a creature but i'm humble because i'm a disciple of the lord jesus christ and that's it (laughs) that's what it means as best I can tell biblically to humble yourself do you you understand now what I was talking about at the beginning of how shallow we see it's just oh, oh in light of my sin I'm so humble before God oh my goodness that's just scratching the surface And could I ask you to do this this week? Every single day, every single morning, would you come before God in humility because of those four things? And would you do this this week? Would you just talk to God and begin to allow Him to give you that kind of awareness and that comprehension of who He is and who you are in light of all that He is. And hopefully, next week, we're going to be able to come in here and hopefully be able to tie the bow on this thing of what it means to take up the cross. No guarantee. I'm thinking. And I want to ask you to please do everything within your power to be here next week for, for that. I mean, it's all, it's all leading to us experiencing the fullness of what became ours the day we got saved. And man, before you get to heaven and you do become like Christ, wouldn't you like to become a little bit more like Christ before you get there? Because I believe our rewards in large part, are going to be based on how much liking you allowed Him to make you. Down here. Ooh, there it is, that self thing. We want those rewards. No, 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 Uh uh-uh. We want to be rewarded because, understand, with what we have been given in eternity, the crowns we receive, we cast back before Him. And you know what they really represent? Those crowns represent an eternity our capacity for the rest of eternity to worship him to praise him and to glorify him you, 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 are you saying you believe in degrees of heaven mm-hmm. yep I believe some of the people in this room are going to have a greater capacity in all of eternity, no, we'll all do it I think some of us will have a greater capacity to worship God and to glorify Him and praise Him and honor Him than others have and you know what, the more capacity you have the more fulfilling eternity is for you because in His presence it's the only thing you want to do we'll all be fulfilled but old buddy for all of eternity when you like to maximize that oh God I thank you for this group of folks that love you enough to listen to somebody go on and on that long. I know visitors are probably freaking out. But oh God, we ain't here just to do the church thing. We feel better about ourselves because we walk into a building. Lord, we are here because we want the fullness of all that our salvation was and is And so, God, I I pray that you would spare me from the hypocrisy of preaching this message and yet living in pride. And I do seek, oh God, to humble myself before you and these people. I pray that you would bring all of us to a full understanding and comprehension of what it means for us to humble ourselves before you. With our heads bowed, nobody looking around, if I could just talk to some of you folks right now that are here that have never come into a relationship with Christ. Listen, I I know that today was a heavy-duty day. Probably got a little more than you bargained for. But now listen... I really can't think of a better dad rather have you here the day where we've lifted up the Lord Jesus Christ to see him for who he is because the fact is if you today have been able to see the Lord Jesus Christ and I can't in human words i, I can't put it together the way that it is the the spirit of God I have to do that by taking his his word to to your heart but some of you have seen the Lord Jesus Christ today in the fullness of all that he is. And I know that if you did, you've already begun to see you for the fullness of all that you are. And right now, if you're listening to God, there is a a place of desperation to which you've been brought. And listen, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of folks all around you that were brought to the same place where you're sitting this morning. And you know what it is? The God of this universe is drawing you to Himself. The Spirit of God right now is convicting of sin and of righteousness and of judgment so that you can be brought to Christ. And if that's where you are this morning, the absolute worst thing that you could do is in just a second stand up, walk out the door, get in your car, and get back into life. The Bible says, today if you'll hear His voice, harden not your heart. And today if you're hearing His voice, i would encourage you to respond to that voice and as we're dismissed our pastors are going to be either on either side of the front of this room we offer to you an invitation today to come to one of these men and say i I, I need to talk to somebody about about receiving christ as my savior